0: Please stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. The grass withers and the flowers fall.
1: Corby, thank you for that. That time at Christ Pres in Nashville with you and your family and those other students were it's where I loved. That's, I just loved that time, and that's where I really learned uh, for the first time uh, the gospel and what it, what it really meant. So it's a great privilege. This morning, I want to talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan, but also, and so that I don't mess up the order of the summer series on Genesis, I want to connect the parable with the concept of rest, or at least try to. And I'm going to start, and some of you all have heard this before, I'll start with one of these cautionary tales that uh, Corby referenced uh, a minute ago. But whenever I try to talk about the meaning of Scripture, I always begin with this story. When my son Brown was very young, His grandmother took him to see The Wizard of Oz. And afterwards, when he got home, I asked him if he had liked it. And he said yes. And I then asked him what it had been about. And he replied, It's about a girl, her dog, a scarecrow, a robot, and a bear. (laughs) The moral is... In relation to stories and their meaning, it is possible to be at least partially wrong. (laughs) So on the front end, I ask your forgiveness for where I'm partially wrong, and I pray that you would hear uh, the truth of God's Word. Um, In a lot of ways, it's not easy to talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan, I think, because it's so well known, and its meaning is fairly straightforward, and Although I've heard this passage discussed both in church and out of church hundreds of times all my life, there's something about it that just was off to me, and it was very hard for me to say what it was until uh, our small group and Kendra Tingle, I don't nope, in the nursery, yeah, she suggested that our small group bring to the group passages of scripture about which we had some questions, and this is the passage that I chose. And our small group helped me to see things that I would not seen before, and that's just one of the many benefits, I think, of small groups. Um, Now, as a framework for this, several years ago, I heard someone recommend three questions as a guide to thinking about uh, difficult things. Um, It's a way of just focusing or slowing down your thinking. Uh, So these three questions are what's right about it, what's wrong with it, and what's missing. And I'm going to use those three questions, hopefully, to help better understand this parable. So, what's right with our understanding of the parable of the Good Samaritan? And I want to be make it really clear at the front end that I agree with this interpretation, so I'm not trying to subvert it or alter it. I think it's a, a fully... Uh, great and wonderful, challenging uh, message and interpretation. And it's about the radical love of God and how that love compels us to treat others. And a typical presentation of the passage goes something like this. A religious expert tests Jesus and gets his own worldview challenged. This is common in the Gospels. We're all familiar with other similar exchanges between Jesus and Pharisees, Sadducees, so-called experts in the law, or others with influence. And both Matthew and Mark tell of encounters like this one in which a legal expert asks Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? But in Luke's version, it's a little different. The question is about salvation. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds with the question, how do you read it? He says to the expert. And so the summation of the law gets placed in the mouth of the expert in Luke. And Luke offers, sorry, the, the expert in the law offers that famous summation of the law and prophets love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. But then the expert, wanting to justify himself, asks for clarification who is my neighbor? And this sets the stage for the parable. In the parable, Jesus shocks the expert by making the Samaritan the hero instead of the priest or the Levite. And as I think everyone knows, the Samaritans, and Scott helped me with this a little bit earlier in the week, Samaritans were just sort of, they were disliked by the Jewish people, maybe enemies, sort of second-class citizens. And so Jesus seems to be saying, Be wary of your own self-righteousness, of interpreting God's commands in ways that prefer or support your own prejudices, and be wary of limiting God's love. God loves all men. Now, in its first century context, the reading anticipates the early church's mission to spread the good news of Christ, first from Jerusalem and Judea, and then to Samaria and the ends of the earth. Luke picks up this story in Acts. But Jesus himself had prohibited his disciples from taking his prophetic message into Samaria or beyond for now. But Jesus had begun to signal that God's salvation was not reserved for the Jews alone. And this is clear, for example, in the parables of the tenants, in the wedding banquet, or in his interactions with the Samaritan leper or the Samaritan woman at the well. It's easy, therefore, to read the parable in that context, and Jesus' challenge now go and do likewise as a sort of early version of the Great Commission, encouraging us to share and to show the love of God with all people. Now today, this interpretation seems very obvious. And again, I I don't want to deny it or challenge it in, in any way. It remains relevant and challenging, It's human nature to prefer one's own kind. God challenges us to love our neighbor, and he now broadly defines our neighbor to include even our enemies. And we fail really easily here. So it's easy to imagine contemporary applications, especially given that we live in a pluralistic society where cross-cultural encounters are more common and more divisive than ever. The religious community, myself included, continues to ask, who is my neighbor in ways that exclude people? And we too often pass by our neighbor when our neighbor is poor or inconvenient or an immigrant or a Muslim or just different. Isn't that how you read the parable? It's certainly the way I've always heard it, both, again, in church and out of church. And I think the passage undoubtedly has this meaning and this convicting application, but I want to examine it a little more carefully to see what else it might be teaching us about God's love. And to help us do that, we ask the next question, what's wrong with this understanding or this application? Now, the early church fathers, they had an obsessive and unnatural love of allegory and They saw in the Samaritan a symbol of Christ himself. But I think they were, despite their obsession with allegory, I think they were onto something here. We tend to emphasize in the Samaritan a way of being good. And in fact, the biggest clue that we may be misunderstanding something about the parable is that it is wrongly named. The Bible never describes the Samaritan as good, And elsewhere, there are passages where we see Jesus rebuking experts for calling him good or for asking, what good thing must I do? Why do you call me good? Jesus asks in reply. So if experts are cautioned against applying this label to Jesus, surely we should be careful applying it to the Samaritan. So why do we call the Samaritan good? So a little bit of a history lesson. I hope I got this from the internet mainly. So... (laughs) What, what choice do I have, really? But um, The Samaritan apparently became the good Samaritan in the 17th century. Uh, a man named Peter Chamberlain may have been the first person to call the Samaritan good in his 1649 work entitled The Poor Man's Advocate and tellingly subtitled The English Samaritan. Today the title is everywhere in popular culture, there are Good Samaritan laws, I found a Good Samaritan Lego video, it's pretty good. Um, there's a Good Samaritan day with its own hashtag, there's a great Burger King commercial where there's a car stranded, it looks like it's on fire on the interstate, people are driving by but a few people stop to help and they are rewarded with a Whopper, the Whopper, car has been retrofitted with a grill that's what's causing the smoke and you get a whopper when you stop you get a reward immediately Um, but to go back to the 17th century this was a period of time during which the ideas of the reformation had been digested by theologians and those ideas were being pushed out and practically worked out in society And they were wrestling with a couple of things. On the one hand, Christians were resisting accusations that the the mantra of the Reformation by faith alone meant a sort of lawlessness. And on the other hand, and probably more uh, importantly for our purposes, um, if salvation was a free gift of grace, if it was freely given and not based on works, how can I know if I am among the elect? And the solution to both these issues, uh, for many, was not surprisingly good works. If works don't matter for our salvation, then they must matter after it, as proof that I'm saved. In other words, there was a collective wrestling at this time with the same concerns as the expert in Luke. Concerns over salvation and justification, and the result was this hyper-exertion to do work that was noticeably good and that it benefited other people. And in the same period, Protestants gained notoriety, as was later famously described, for their work ethic. And this sort of anxious stance toward good works reminds me of another rebuke of Christ. At Luke eleven forty six. 46, Jesus says, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. And today, I think there is a similar anxiety to signal through our actions or our outrage that we are good and that we belong. There is even a term for it, virtue signaling. That's when you post something on, online that you're angry about. It's really supposed to reflect that you understand what good is, and you understand that you're on the right side of of history or something like that. So what makes one good today is less what we do than who we are. And we are eager for a Jesus whose summation of the law as love hurriedly passes on the other side of the underlying commandments and the Old Testament God who gave them on the way to more civic virtues like tolerance and inclusivity. And so very often when you hear this parable used today, it is used to signal how enlightened I am. So I just want to read back my own words a minute ago uh, when I talked about the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is what I said. The religious community, myself included, continues to ask who is my neighbor in ways that exclude people, and we too often pass by our neighbor when our neighbor is poor or inconvenient or an immigrant or a Muslim or just different. It feels good to me reading that. It's just under the character count of a tweet. I could (laughs) tweet it out later. Even the self-deprecating nod I slipped in, acknowledging but really hedging my role in the religious community, sort of humbly bragging that I'm part of the problem but really signaling that I'm being the change I want to see in the world. And again, it made me feel good about myself. I can imagine a time hundreds of years from now when the heading in your Bible isn't the parable of the Good Samaritan but the parable of the Woke Samaritan. But this reading is too easy to be correct. If this passage teaches us anything, it teaches that our interpretation of Scripture should be most mistrusted when it aligns with and supports our own identities, especially the identities we create and the ones created for us by the dominant culture in which we live. We are all experts in our own laws. We all test God, We all want to justify ourselves in our readings of Scripture. We're like a man in some sort of log roll competition where we're trying to win, but we too easily slip off one side or the other, off into either self-flagellation or self-congratulation, which are the two sides of self-justification. And I fear our current use of this parable is wrong for these reasons. It's just too easy to use it to justify ourselves. So, what are we What are we missing? So there's a scene in Anchorman where he takes out a conch shell and summons his other news anchors. Imagine I'm doing this now for other language and English teachers in the room. I'm going to talk about grammar. I need you all to kind of support me so we don't... And I've provided this little handout. If you complete this, you'll get the point of what I'm wanting to say. Corby's uh, referenced it earlier. But I think what's missing is a very careful, slow, step-by-step appreciation of the grammar and structure of the passage. And specifically, how the grammar and structure of the parable respond to the expert's question and summation of the law. In short... The grammar of the expert's question does not match the grammar of the parable. And I think we should ask, why is this? I think Jesus intentionally changes the grammar of the narrative to change our relationship with the expert's original question, namely, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Further, Failing to appreciate how the grammar works causes us to skip a key step in the application or understanding of the parable. And as a result, it causes us to miss the parable's full meaning in the very ways we discussed a moment ago. Specifically, missing this makes it too easy to use the parable to justify ourselves the very thing Jesus was opposing in the expert's heart. So, let's walk through this carefully. The expert asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer, in part, is as follows. You must love your neighbor. Now, grammatically in that statement, you are the subject, and the neighbor is the object, right? You are the one loving the neighbor. So to fulfill this command, you have to act because you're the subject. And given the grammar of the question and the law, we expect the answer to follow the same structure. And this expectation is heightened here because ostensibly what Jesus is doing in the parable, at least in part, is giving an example of the law's application. He's showing us how to love our neighbor. Now, it's true that there's a secondary question that he's focusing on related to the definition of neighbor, but that is set in this larger context of what it means to love one's neighbor. My expectation would be that someone in the story goes and rescues a neighbor. But Jesus goes against our expectations, not just culturally, not just because he makes the Samaritan, the hated outsider, the hero But he also goes against our expectations grammatically because he makes the neighbor the subject. In the story, the Samaritan does the acting. So given this, a real difficulty or conflict or some sort of tension you should be feeling or some sort of question you should be asking, uh, when we try to plug that definition back into the original law... And uh, that was at issue. But too often when we go and do likewise, we just skip over that difficulty and we slip back into the grammar of the original question and we try to apply the parable as if it exclusively said, okay, you now go out and love your neighbor who may be a Samaritan or an enemy or some other outsider. And all the applications we looked at earlier do this. They too quickly or without thought or reflection ignore the change in grammar that Jesus imposed on the story. We go back to being the actor or the hero or the subject in our own story. And so without our imaginations transformed by the new narrative, we keep trying to justify ourselves and to save the other. I think Jesus is trying to prevent you from doing this too readily by the parable's grammar. If Jesus has made the Samaritan the subject, it means that in his story, you are the object. I'm going to repeat it. Christ, with his message of God's radical, expansive, and inclusive love, has made you the object of the story. So the message is not just that God's love is so big and so radical that he loves Samaritans or even, insert whatever, untouchable class you want. The message is that God's love is so big and so radical that it includes you, the sinner you know best. You are the object of God's love. You are the one pummeled and left for dead in the road. And while you were not left to die from your wounds, you were left as the object of God's story. So, who is your neighbor? He's not someone you can either ignore or save. He's someone you hated, someone your sin crucified, the ultimate outsider, the ultimate other, the Son of God. And so in the end, the parable's meaning is the most basic one in all of Christianity. Jesus loves you. Jesus is the one who had mercy on you. And you can never truly love your neighbor until you are first captured by the truth that God loves you. So, given this, how do we go and do likewise? And what does this passage have to do with rest? It's interesting, I think, that the very next story that Luke tells is the story of Jesus visiting the home of Mary and Martha. I'll come back to that in just a second. But before doing that, I want to return at least for a minute, to Genesis. In Genesis 2, 1 through 3, we learn that God rested from the work of his creation. And on either side of that pause in the creation narrative, there are two visions of human life. Uh, On either side, and this is important, on either side there's work to do. But before the fall, we worked fully assured that we were loved and that uh, who we were and what we did was good Because God had made it so. God had told us so. And after the fall, there is sin and death and thorns and thistles and the sweat of our brow. On the one side, creation is a gift. Man is in God's image and it is good. On the other side of that rest, there is man wanting to be God or wrestling with him. And we know how that turns out. The hair's breadth between these two ways of living is whether we want to be the subject of our own story or the object of God's. So now we live in a fallen world, and when Jesus invites us to follow him or to go and do likewise, he of course wants us to participate with him in good work, including by loving and helping others. And as we do this, There will be pain and difficulty. We may be unjustly attacked. Uh, But despite this, even now, he is also inviting us to leave the world and the way of working in which we are ever trying to justify ourselves and to enter a world in which we are the objects of his love. This is, I think, the invitation found in the parable of the Samaritan, and I think it has everything to do with rest. Now, how we respond to that invitation is uncertain. It's going to be different for each one of us. uh, But as Lisa helped me think about this earlier, it's some pretty basic answers. It involves committing to practices that bring you near to Jesus. Prayer, attending church, reading the Bible, participating in a small group, singing, all these things, anything that brings us near to him so that we can imagine ourselves as the objects of his affection. So here's one you can try this week. Amidst all your work and cares, I want you to take some time and imagine that you are one of Jesus' disciples and that you witnessed this interaction with the expert and you just heard the parable and you're wondering what it means and how to go and do likewise. And according to Luke, the very next thing you did was travel with Jesus to visit the home of Mary and Martha. And there you witnessed two ways of being with Jesus. Martha's distracted and anxious with all the work she has to do, and I'm sure it was work that needed to be done, while Mary sits at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. And in that episode, you heard a word that you did not hear in the parable of the Good Samaritan. It was the word God used in the beginning to describe his creation— And it's the word Jesus chooses to describe Mary. Jesus says that Mary's way is good and it's a good we cannot lose. So now, as the object of God's great love and affection, changed and transformed by that truth, we can go and do likewise. Thank you.